Revelation 17, beginning in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth commit fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have followed, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their heart to fulfill his purpose, to be one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. We come now to Revelation chapter 17 as we are preaching through this last book of Holy Scripture. One of the things we mentioned in the previous sermon on chapter 16 was that don't think that God has forgotten about Babylon. That's the threat, that is the problem sometimes, as we go through the letters to the seven churches, and that is the reassurance and the reminder to God's people, do not think that God is going to forget about Babylon. God has not forgotten. Babylon and her situation is already featured throughout this book. It's not the end even here in chapter 17. We'll go on in chapter 18 as well. But we see this whole chapter given over to description of Babylon and the judgment that God is going to pour out on her. 
says in verse 1, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So that's what this chapter is about. Come, I will show you the great harlot. I want to show you who she is and what's going to happen to her. Now, notice, first of all, that this harlot is pictured as a woman. And it is in opposition to the woman of Revelation chapter 12. You remember this great sign in heaven of a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Well, Revelation is a tale, really, of two women, just as the whole Bible, really, is a tale of two seeds. You remember this? those two seeds way back in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3, the seed of the serpent, of Satan, and all those who are going to follow his false ways, and the seed of the woman, ultimately Christ and all those who follow Christ in union with, with him. These two seeds epitomized by these two women here in Revelation One, Israel, or the bride of Christ, who arrays herself for her husband, Jesus Christ, who follows Christ, who loves Christ and is united with Christ. And then you have this harlot, you have this woman, this prostitute, who is united with Satan, in league with him, after whom all the world goes after. Well... Sometimes we are concerned, maybe too much, to be subtle. You know, um, particularly in our day, uh, every single statement that ever has to be made has to have 10,000 qualifications around it. And all the force out of every statement is taken away. We don't have just right and wrong. Um, We just were killed with a, a million qualifications. Well, I don't mean to say that every last thing is black and white. There are some things in Scripture that are something of a gray area. There are some things that are left to Christian liberty. But the overall thrust of this Bible is not like that, and the overall thrust, particularly Revelation, is not like that either. So let us not be wiser than God when God gives us this very clear picture of, the, of Babylon, of this harlot, compared to this, the woman who is the bride of Christ. They are absolutely opposed in every way. Every depiction of them is utterly opposite. And every description of them is at polar odds. And we should understand this morning as we have already seen something of Christ, haven't we, if we've been going through this. We've seen his perfections in purity. We've seen just a little bit about the bride of Christ and then we're going to see that. That's the happy ending that we're yet to see, Right? The bride of Christ, as we see her revealed, coming down out of heaven. And we're going to see her in all of her perfections. But today we see something very different. We see the whore, the Babylon of the world. And all of her lies and deception and impurity and seduction. I will show you this great harlot. That's the title of this sermon. In order to understand what's going to happen to her, in order to understand our attitude and approach to her, we have to see her as she really is because that is one thing that we'll never see from the world. And that is something I can absolutely guarantee you. You will never see from the world a true depiction of who she is because she will always cloak herself in something that looks much better than she is. 
That is her nature as a harlot. This is the only time in this week, maybe this month, that you will see this harlot as she is. The rest of your time, as you live in the world, you will see her illusions, you will see her allurements and her seductions. Now is your time to get it straight. With God's help, maybe we'll do that. Well, I would also want to say on the outset, besides underlining the importance of seeing this harlot as she truly is, I would also want to underline something else, that as we describe it this way, we're not being self-righteous. Okay? And uh, no one here is saying that we have utterly rejected. I wish that were the case, that we've utterly rejected this great harlot. Because the sad thing is, and I think this is the other thing that we've got to understand, maybe we don't see her as she is. And the the problem for us is that we all have an illicit relationship with this harlot. Somewhere in the side, we may be united with Christ, we may be the bride of Christ, but somewhere in our hearts, there's reserved some affection for the old flame of this harlot of the world. And we are all in various ways carrying on some amount of illicit relationship with her. And so none of us speak as those who have gotten this finished. We all speak of those who need greater clarity and greater weapons in our hand and greater power to resist her charms. Well, with that, I will show you the great harlot. These three, or these four points, actually. First, the harlot is supported by Satan. Second, the harlot seduces people to unfaithfulness. Third, the harlot persecutes the saints. And fourth, the mystery explained. So first, the harlot is supported by Satan. It says in verse 3, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Going away in the wilderness, perhaps as a picture then of a place of testing. You know that that was a place of testing for Israel as they wandered about in the desert and they were tested. And likewise a place of testing for the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Spirit brought him to the wilderness in order that he might be tested by Satan for 40 days. Well, in any case, what we're seeing in the wilderness in this perhaps place of testing is a woman, as we've already mentioned, personified. Uh, This woman is not an actual woman. It's not one particular individual, but it is rather the personification of something larger than that. And the thing that we need to notice here is the fact that she is sitting on a scarlet beast. We'll talk a little bit more about that, but the point is that she is sitting on this scarlet beast. Now, what what are we to think on this? Um... And there have been any number of fanciful interpretations at this point as to how this goes. But I think the basic point is that she's simply being borne along by, she's being supported by someone else. It's not this, this woman, whoever she is, she's not acting on her own. Somehow she's being supported and being carried along by some other force, some other power. And that other force, that other power is described as the beast. We have already seen throughout Revelation who this beast is. This beast is the animation and personification in this world of the workings of Satan. 
And what we're seeing here is that ultimately this woman, as we're trying to get a clear picture of who she is, remember this is, this is one time where the illusion is gone. And this woman is being supported by Satan. This woman is being led by Satan. This woman is being carried around by Satan. And this is what we must not forget, that this world is not neutral. We sometimes imagine that there is a, a battleground going on in the world. The world is a sort of neutral battleground. And there are the good forces of Christ and his people and the bad forces of Satan and his. And then there's a whole bunch of neutral people. And there's just a whole big neutral battlefield uh, of the world. But that is not the case. This woman, who is the world system in rebellion against Christ and everything that he stands for in his church is being supported and empowered and moved by Satan. She is riding on the back of Satan and she is going where he wants to take her. That much we must get clear. Now, who is it? Well, we saw that this beast is one who deceives the whole world. That's how this, this power works. If the, the harlot herself is one who tries to deceive people, well, the reason why she's riding the harlot, or the riding the beast, is because of deception as well. Because it said back in Revelation 12, 9, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called devil and Satan, just to make sure that everyone gets what he's talking about. It's called Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. He deceives the whole world. Whole world. Therefore, by this deception, by means of this deception, being rid, by taken for a ride, as it were, by Satan. That's the picture. We also saw in Revelation 13.3, just to make the point one more time, saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. All the world marveled and followed the beast. 1 John 5.19 says, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. I don't know how many more times that scripture could possibly make it as deadly clear. We sometimes still have a problem understanding this. The world is not neutral. It lies under the sway of Satan. This woman, this harlot... Is riding on the back of the evil one. And therefore, everything else that proceeds from it should not be a surprise to us. The things that come from it, they're not good things. They're destructive. They're seductive. They'll take us away from Christ and bring us to hell. Why? Because the world has its power. The world has its deceptions, the world has its illusions, and all these things are governed not just by some impersonal, random sort of uh, evolution of ideas, but rather Satan himself working overtime to come up with the very best deceptions and the best allurements that he knows, and more often than not, they work because of it. We need to know that about this woman, we need to know that about this harlot, that she is supported by Satan Second, we also need to know that the harlot seduces people to unfaithfulness. That's her nature. She's riding on the back of the beast. And the way that she then works is not by walking around, as it were, uh, with the beast's power, 
with some sort of weapon, yelling at people and, and hitting them with clubs. That's not the way it works. She may be riding on this beast, but it's not often apparent that that's the case. The way she works is by seduction. It's not the open wielding of power, but rather the allurement and seduction of false things. It says in verse 2, With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. You see how that is, that the powers of this earth, those who have been given earthly authority, they commit fornication with her in the sense that um, that the, the world's power, I don't know many that are pristine, I don't know many that are, are pure Christians and have not made any compromise with the world. Everyone that I know that has much earthly power has had to get into bed, so to speak, with the world in order to get it. And that's the thing here. The kings of the earth committed fornication with this woman. And the inhabitants were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Also it says in verse 3, And her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. And, you know, the point here is just to say that the harlot is just that. The harlot is a harlot, a prostitute. In other words, the nature is one who entices people to be unfaithful with her. We don't need to go anywhere else to get an illustration or description of that. It's in Proverbs 7.10. You remember this great proverb, Proverbs 7, which talks about this rebellious uh, woman. It says in Proverbs 7.10, there was a woman who met him, this simple man, this young man who is devoid of all sense, with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. She was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. And then in verse 21, with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. With her flattering lips, she seduced him. All right? Now, this is all a spiritual picture of something physical, of course. Um, the idea of a, that the harlot has to dress up in provocative clothing. She's got to make herself attractive and provocative to those who might pass by and see her. She has to parade herself around and call out, to people with her promises of pleasures. That is what this harlot does. That is her modus operandi. She has made herself out to look wonderful, and she uses speech and promises and so forth to get people to go her way. Well, that's exactly what the world does. That is precisely what the world does. It arrays itself in beautiful wonderful, attractive things that who wouldn't want? You see them, and they're just so perfectly, perfectly constructed to make it attractive. And maybe you're not attracted by everything in the world. You probably find some things rather repulsive. But somewhere, Satan has got a deception just for you. Somewhere he has got something put together that is so attractive that you can't possibly say no to it without the Lord's help. He knows how to do that. Just like a harlot knows how to attract her particular clientele and the particular attire that she chooses to wear, so it is with this world. Satan's very good at it, and he can make this world look just as good as you can imagine. And of course, it's not just the appearance, it's also the, the arguments. It's also the words, the words that speak to us and call to us all of them fitted for a different type of personality or situation in life or whatnot. 
Of course, we, we've already said the world is completely contextual, unlike God's truth, which is one gospel for, and one for, for all times, but rather the world has got it fine-tuned. These arguments, these seductions, that we might listen to these false promises of wonderful things to be had. Now, of course, these things are false, just like the way with a harlot, that there's nothing good, there's nothing permanent, there's nothing right in all this, it's only to destruction. So it is with those who listen to these things. But the problem is that it's not apparent at the outset. The problem is at the outset everything just looks and seems so wonderful. That's the problem with seduction, you see. This harlot is one who seduces people into being unfaithful. Now, of course, we say that this works. It works. She doesn't even have to work all that hard with regard to those who are unregenerate, the people of the world, so to speak, those who are, are not have um, a regenerate heart, those who do not have the Holy Spirit living in them, those who do not have the Word of God. It's quite easy. Christ can seduce, or uh, um, uh, Satan and working through the, this woman can seduce them quite easily. But on the other hand, there's us. There's the bride of Christ. And even more importantly, that this, uh, you know, those are the easy ones. She wants to get us. She wants to get Christians. She wants to seduce us. Christians, we're the bride of Christ. We have Christ as our spiritual husband and none other. And, And we, as we ought to be, we want to make ourselves attractive to Christ. We want to, we care about his good opinion of us and, and no one else's. And we don't really care too much about some, what someone else's promises us in terms of wonderful things. We shouldn't. But you see, because the world is riding on the power of Satan, and Satan's great ambition is to get God's people to fall and to compromise, then this harlot is going to work on us as well. And there are lots and lots of these outfits, so to speak, and lots and lots of these, these speeches and arguments that are designed to get us, to seduce us. Because the intention is that we spiritually commit fornication with the world. And the world wins when that happens. Now, how does that happen? Well, there's a few ways. There's money. For one thing, we see in verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. So money, that's pretty easy, isn't it? Sadly, I don't know many people who have zero attraction whatsoever to money and the things that, that money can buy. We all have a weakness there somewhere. And power, two things that come together. That very picture is not just a picture of wealth, you see, of this woman being arrayed in purple and scarlet. That is a picture of royalty. That is a picture of earthly authority. This world, this world system is clothed not only in wealth but also in authority. That's something that we find, isn't it? Um, When speaking of the desert and speaking of Christ's temptations in the desert, you remember how it is in uh, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 5, Then the devil, taking him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. Perhaps those having a more discerning taste 
than of mere money and the things that money can buy and material things like that. Maybe there's a weakness for power and authority. And Satan says, I've got it if you want it. I'm the one who has that kind of thing. And he even tried that on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't think that he won't try that on you. He's going to offer worldly authority. That's part of the seducing outfit that the harlot wears is the promise of earthly authority. Now, sometimes that promise works out for a while. Sometimes it's just a completely empty promise and lots of people have sought after earthly power and not really gotten anywhere with it. Others have gotten everywhere with it. And every case, of course, is only temporary because that's the thing that the harlot doesn't, isn't quite upfront about is that she has an expiry date and that she and all of her power and, and riches are coming to a soon end. And we must remember that when she speaks these things to us. So there's money, there's power, and there's also false religion and all sorts of idolatry. That's what it says, I think, in verse 4, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. You know, that cup full of abominations is consistently used in Scripture as a picture of false religion, this picture of strong drink, of something that is intoxicating. And it is of idolatry. And it's the nature of idolatry, you see, to make us drunk. Satan doesn't want people to be sober-minded. He wants their power of judgment. It's already compromised by the fall, of course, but he wants it to be further diminished and distorted by giving them something that's going to make them drunk. Now, whatever we have left over from the fall, we all yet retain some vestige, uh, not of holiness, but rather we, we retain Um, the understanding of the law that is written upon our hearts, and we have some notion that there is a God and that he's going to one day bring us into judgment. So we have these things. But that's the great enemy of Satan. He's got to work against it. And so he, he mixes us up some strong drink of some sort of false, powerful religion that'll keep us drunk, that'll dull our senses. And so whether it's a, a false religion of the world Uh, any one of the the world religions, anything but biblical Christianity, anything that has involves working for salvation and all the rest of it, or some kind of idolatry that we throw ourselves into in this world. We get the idea that at the end of it, we're going to be saved. There's some sort of salvation story here. And if you were to go around in this neighborhood or all around in Gateshead and Newcastle and ask people what kind of danger they thought they were in, what would they say? In 99 cases out of 100, they would, they would say, I'm not shaking my boots. I'm okay. I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Why? They are drunk. They are drunk. They have, the woman has offered them a drink, and they have drunk it down of some sort of false religion that they think is going to save them so that they're not worried about it. They're intoxicated, and their judgment is gone. And so they're not at all understanding of the danger that they're in. And the harlot just keeps on serving that up to them to keep them in that state of intoxication and drunkenness so that they never come to their senses. If they did, of course, they might just see the harlot for who she is and make other plans. Well, this harlot has ways of seducing people, both of the world and of the saints, these various things of money and power and false religion. Thirdly, the harlot 
persecutes and kills the saints. That's what we see in verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now, we said very clearly in, verse, in, in the, the second point that the woman's primary aim is to get you to compromise with her. That's what she's all about because that's what brings glory to the one that she is riding. If Satan can get people simply to make some compromise with him, then he's won. That's what he wants. That brings glory to him because you're following. That's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve, as you know. Just compromise. Just I'll, I'll make this apple, this, this uh, fruit we don't know is an apple, but whatever fruit it was, this forbidden fruit, I'm going to make it seem like the most attractive thing in the world. Even though you've got any other of the fruits of this, of this uh, whole garden to eat of, I'm going to dress this particular thing up as something irresistible and wonderful, and everything that comes from it is going to be great. And so Eve and then Adam, they compromise, they listen to these things, and they fall. That's all Satan wanted, mission accomplished. And if he can get us to do that, if he can get us to dabble, if he can get us to carry on some sort of illicit relationship on the side with the world, then that is great. He doesn't, he's not going to do anything more. He doesn't use anything more than is necessary, really. He's quite clever. He's not going to persecute us, by the way, if that happens. world, as I mentioned in some other sermon, is not asking for everything. It's just asking that we give a little and once we've given a little, just like an interrogator at some POW camp, and that was part of our training, incidentally, in, in the military, was to understand these techniques. The interrogator doesn't come and say, I want you to sell out your country. I want you to tell me everything that is useful for me so we can, de- we can destroy you. Um, and I want you to uh, turn your back on all the vows that you've made all the oaths that you've taken, and uh, to betray your own people. It's never like that. It's more like, well, maybe you can just, just tell me whether what, what, you know, what uh, service you were in. Maybe you can just tell me if you were on the ground or on, in the air or something along those lines. That's, that's not going to cause any problem, is it? But they know, of course, that the principle is simply that you have made this compromise and that you have shown that your allegiance does not lie with your own people, with your own country, but increasingly your heart is being turned towards something else. Well, that's the issue here. If the harlot can get you to do that, then, then that's great. But, of course, if you don't, then she's going to have to play rough. Because the harlot will then persecute and sometimes kill you. You know, John 17 makes it so very clear that the world hates Christians. John 17, 14 says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. The world has hated them. Okay? Be clear. world hates Christians. It's true. And out of that hatred, she sometimes persecutes them. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace in the world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. In the world, you will have tribulation, stemming from that heart of hatred and enmity. Remember, by the way, if we're saying that this is a story of two women, the woman Israel, who is the bride of Christ, and this woman, this harlot, this Babylon, who is the world as animated by Satan, well, likewise, these two seeds, 
are at enmity one with another. From the very beginning, there has been enmity between, I will put enmity between your seed and his seed. And that enmity continues. And by the way, that enmity is a good thing. There wasn't enough enmity between Satan and the woman, and that's why she listened. They were buddy-buddy. They were cozy-cozy. There ought to be enmity between these. And, and God's word makes it very clear that the world hates Christians. And therefore, persecution comes. In the world, you will have tribulation. Sometimes that tribulation, sometimes that persecution uh, spills over into actual physical killing. And I hope you understand that, perse- that martyrdom, that persecution along these lines is not something consigned to the distant past of church history. The 20th century was the bloodiest century there ever has been. More Christians were killed than at any other time. And the 21st century is well on track for exceeding that. This is not something in the past. And because of this hatred, because of this persecution, sometimes the world kills Christians. That's what we've already seen in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, this all-important section. We hear the voice of the martyrs. We hear this prayer of the martyrs. He opened the fifth seal. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. No testimony, that's terrible. You see, it's not just that they're Christians. It's that they're consistent Christians who won't shut up. The world wanted them to shut up, but they wouldn't. It kept using all the allurements, and when the allurements wouldn't work, then it was the threats. And when the threats wouldn't work, then it was violence. Because of this awful truth. And they were slain. And they cried out for a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And that's exactly what is pictured here. In verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. There she is. That's the killer. That's the one who has shed the blood of these martyrs. These martyrs look on from heaven. And as John has shown, that's the one. She's done it. And that leads us in this, this harlot who persecutes and kills the saints. Leads us to our fourth and final point. This mystery explained. Because at the end of verse 6, John says, When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. And the amazement is because, how is this possible? How is she going to get away with this? Lord, how is this woman still able to carry on this way? You know, that's the thought that would come to you too. If you had as clear a vision as John the Apostle did of the absolute power and authority and sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you understood how great and total his authority was, you would be amazed too that there is some entity that's getting away with it, that can, with impunity, take away the lives of Christ's own beloved people. It would appear to you as something strange indeed, and you'd be amazed by it. Well, that's why we have to understand the mystery. That's why the angel goes on to say to John, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. And what follows then is a precise and detailed explanation of how this power has been manifested in the world throughout world history and on into the future until the second coming. And I won't go with, speak of, of every detail, but the point is 
the point that we should take away is that all of this has been planned out very precisely. All of it has a precise timeline in accordance with the authority of God that he means for this all to happen as it does. And all that is summed up, we don't have to guess, all that is summed up as it is in in verse 8. And the fact that the people of the world would succumb to the beast, that's in accordance with God's sovereign decree. It says in verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go in perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. He speaks so matter-of-factly, doesn't he? Well, he can, because he's someone who understands the totality of God's sovereign plan, his decree over all the things that have ever happened or will ever happen. It is all in accordance with his plan. And he's going to, he says, he's going to come. Those who dwell on the earth will marvel and follow because their names are not written in the book of life. Now, what does that point us to? points us to predestination. And not just single predestination. Some of you probably have heard that there's an idea that there's uh, a single predestination, that um, God chooses some for salvation. But he doesn't really choose others for anything else. He simply chooses some, and we just don't know anything about, about the others. Well, the Bible very clearly teaches what we call double predestination, that God determines the eternal destiny of all people. Those who put their faith in Christ only do so because he has ordained and given them the ability to do that. Now, we're not in, in all an excuse. There's no excuse whatsoever. We can do as we want. No one's holding a gun to our head one way or another. But inasmuch as these things are supernaturally animated, inasmuch as as God determines everything that happens, from the littlest, from the dropping of a, a hair of our head, the Bible says, he determines even that. We can be sure that something as big and as important as the destiny of all people, that's also in God's hands. So the reason why these people end up following the beast all their days and never, never escape from her seduction and allurements, the reason why they're trapped by these things and these lies is because they weren't written in the book of the Lamb. As it goes on to say in verse 15, these waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw in the beast, those will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God, in verse 17, God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. How is it possible that this harlot can deceive the world? And how is it possible that she's getting away with her crimes and persecuting the saints? The only explanation is that God has sovereignly determined it to be so. That it is somehow to his glory that this strife is carried on. It is somehow to his glory that this harlot arrays herself in as attractive a way as she knows how. That her seductions are so powerful and her authority on this earth is so great that if there are any who escape her, it is to the amazing glory of God. That when in the end God's people resist her, fight against her, not with 
with earthly weapons, not with guns and swords, but rather when they resist the temptation to be seduced by her. It is to the glory of God. God wants that to happen. He's not afraid of how his product is going to perform in this test. He has brought us to himself, and he is more than glad to put us on display against the very worst of conditions, against the very worst of seductions. And when this harlot, and we have seen just how, how powerful and how uh, seductive a harlot she is, and when we see this harlot, and yet we shake our head and turn the other way, and remain faithful to our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has given great glory for it. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. His names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It's been determined by God. That's the mystery. That's the explanation of how this happened. It's a mystery as to how this, this heart got so much power and, and is able to get away with it. But the answer to the mystery is the sovereignty of God. And just like that, the saints' ultimate victory, our victory, is also a matter of God's sovereign decree. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to hold in suspense. Please don't think that this is some unpredictable thriller. We don't know how this is going to end. It's, we're no suspense whatsoever. It says in verse 14, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Christ and his people will have the victory. It's not in any doubt. But the reason why they have the victory is likewise. Because it is of uh, God's sovereign decree that they have it. They are called, chosen, and faithful. And the reason why they're called, chosen, and faithful is because of God's own predestination. God's own sovereignty to choose them and call them. And to make them faithful. What's the explanation of the harlot? Why is she allowed to go on? God's sovereignty. What's the explanation of the saints? How they're able to resist her? How they're able to fight against her? And ultimately have the victory? God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. That's the, the mystery explained. And oh, by the way, in verse 18 it says, The woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Babylon, Rome, but actually the world system, the whole world system as it is in rebellion against God. Well, that's the great harlot. She's been revealed to us for what she really is. We understand everything about her in the clear light of day, and the question is what should we do about it? First, we need to know, and I suppose we need to feel the sovereignty of God. Because in all of this, we're not just seeing the harlot, we're also seeing the real God. That is a point of revelation. It is a revealing, it is a making clear of things that are obscure. And what we have found out this morning is that God's sovereignty is absolute, and it extends to the eternal destiny of all people. And it should be to us simultaneously, in, in different ways, the most scary and also the most comforting doctrine. Now, for the sinner, for those who are outside of Christ, it should fill you with dread. Because it is not just a, a matter of some sort of halfway situation, this God's sovereignty. 
This sovereignty is so great that you could do your worst. You could join with Satan and the enemies of God completely. You could trust, you could do as much as you knew how to destroy his truth, to destroy his Bible, to work against Christians, to persecute them and kill them, and all that it ends up still being part of God's plan for your own destruction. Somehow he is still glorified in all of it. You can do your worst. And yet you'll not prevail against him at all, but even all of your actions against him will be used yet for his glory and against you. You should be very afraid to set yourself against this sovereign God because you most certainly will not prevail. But on the other hand, it should fill the saint with delightful comfort because if you're held aloft by him, you will not fail. This sovereign God who is able to make even his worst enemies to work for him ultimately, he can be sure that he's able to make you to stand. He's able to make you persevere into the end. He is more than able to do these things. And those who are called and those who are chosen will also be faithful. You see, it's never a matter of Uh, You know, if we're saved by grace through faith, then it's never going to be a matter that our faith has to be complete and that our obedience has to be somehow perfect. It's not like that at all. God is the one who saves us in the first place because he loves us, because he's set his affection on us, because he's chosen us. If you've come to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you can be sure that it's because of his own sovereign determination and therefore, you don't have to worry about falling. Because God is able to keep you. God is able to make you do all the things that he calls you to do. Secondly, don't love the harlot. Don't love her. Okay? In fact, I'd say these, these various things. Don't love her. Don't befriend her. Don't imitate her. And don't fear her. Don't love her. That's what it says in verse in, in 1 John 2.15. Before Revelation, we were in 1 John. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, the very things that the harlot arrays herself with, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Don't love him. Why? Because it's passing away. If you set your love on the things of this world, you will find yourself quickly bereaved. It doesn't even take you, by the way, to get to the end of your life. Most people who set their affections on the things of this world very quickly find out that they do not satisfy, they do not actually give what they promise, and they take away many other things. Don't set your love upon the harlot. By the way, we have this example of A Christian who did that, Demas, someone who named the name of Christ. Now, as we we know that there's a difference between naming his name and claiming to be a Christian and actually having put your faith in Christ. But it says in in, uh, 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas has forsaken me. Why? Having loved this present world. That's the danger. We shouldn't love the world. Don't harbor any love or affection for the world. And And B, I guess, don't befriend her. Don't love her, don't befriend her. Befriend people in the world, absolutely. But there is a big, big, big difference between befriending people and befriending the world. 
Okay. It says in James 4, 4, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And that's the clarity we have when we see the harlot as she truly is. She is riding upon the scarlet beast who is ultimately Satan. And therefore you couldn't possibly cozy up to this harlot, could you? And, and, and befriend her and take on her sort of ways and so forth without being an enemy of God. Don't befriend her. Don't imitate her. Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world. The world is always trying to press us into its mold. Don't do it. Don't let it happen to you. Don't love her. Don't befriend her. Don't imitate her. But also it should be said, don't fear her. Because that's what this, if we forgot that, we would forget what the whole chapter is about. Remember, those people in the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, they have a problem. And the problem is that they have a little place in their heart for the world, most of those churches. And they are being tempted to compromise with the world, just like we are. And beyond those people that have a problem of compromising, then there's also the set, and sometimes they're the same, by the way, but there's also the set of those who are being persecuted. Most of those churches are being persecuted by the world. And the question is, should they fear? One of, the, one of these groups needs to understand that you shouldn't befriend or love the world because that's destructive and in enmity against God. And the other set needs to understand, don't fear what the world is about to bring upon you. You see, because ultimately this, this harlot is going to be brought into judgment. We shouldn't be too afraid of that because her days are numbered. Her judgment has already been determined in every last detail, and we've, we've read about it. We're going to read about it again in chapter 18. So don't be afraid of this harlot either. Thirdly and finally, you ought to do what's necessary for your soul, and I hope this has become quite clear to you. Okay, if this is reality, if this is the clear light of day of what this world really is, she, she's some, uh, this ghastly woman dressed up to be attractive, dressed up to be seductive to us with all these false religions and idolatries and these things that are going to kill us. She's going to make us drunk long enough so that we're out of our senses so that we, that we then end up being spiritually dead and end up in hell forever having never realized our danger and put our faith in Christ. Well, if that's the situation, we need to do whatever is necessary. We need to ruthlessly do what is necessary for our own soul. Okay? In this moment of clarity, you may not have it again. This moment of daylight, where you actually see the world for what the world really is, now's your opportunity to do something about it. And you ought to do what's necessary for your soul. As Matthew 16, 26 says, For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's the thing. Even if you were to succeed and get the whole world, everything that this world could possibly give you, whatever it is that is formulated just for you, that you find so very attractive, if you were to get it, then what? Is that going to save your soul? What happens when you die? What happens when you die? What then? What comfort are these things going to be to you then? What ability to save you are these things? Nothing. There is no potentate, there is no world dictator or leader that has the authority to even save his own soul. 
Well, John 12, 25 says this, He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. As if your overriding concern is what happens in this world, you're doomed. Your concern has got to be what's going to happen in eternity, right? Again, do the math. Talking about it most, 100 years, something like that. 100 trillion years. Infinity. You can't possibly mathematically come to it. It doesn't work that way. It's, it's infinitely greater than your life here. And your priority must be with what happens then. And what we need to do if we're going to lose our life is that we've got to give it over to Christ. Okay? Our allegiance can't be to the harlot. And to have those priorities, our allegiance has to be to submit, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about receiving the false religion. It's not about receiving something by our own works or idolatry or the rest of it. It is about receiving Christ. And he's able, you see, to make us alive. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. You who made alive, who are dead in sins and trespasses. You who once walked according to the course of this world. Everyone does. It's not an exceptional case. You who once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, of whom all we once conducted ourselves, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind. But here we come to this wonderful little word in verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love by which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. By grace. Meaning if that you receive Christ, if you believe on him and what he has accomplished for you on the cross, something so utterly different than what Satan does. Satan wants to deceive you so he can kill you. Satan wants to tell, or Christ tells us the truth because he has died for our sakes. That all who put their faith in him will be saved. A perfect free gift. So even though we might have been taken captive by this world, even though we might have listened to the false things, but God, who is rich in mercy, is able to save us through Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you enable us to see true things. We pray, Lord, that this moment of clarity would not pass away, not turn into a vapor, but rather, Lord God, that we would have this burned in our minds and that we would think and do what we ought to do in, in accordance with them. That, Lord, if we are yet the prisoners of this harlot, if we are yet trapped in sins and trespasses, and our enemies with God, we pray, Lord, that we would consider the end of these things and that we turn away from them, we'd repent, and instead we'd put our faith in Jesus Christ and we'd be with him forever, that we'd be willing to turn our back on the world rather that we might gain eternity, that we might gain our own souls, the one thing that this world could never give us, peace and safety for our own souls. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to do that. And Lord, for those of us who continually struggle with the allurements, with the seductions of this world in various ways, 
We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to see this harlot as she truly is. And that we'd not desire her, we'd not love her, we'd not befriend her. But rather, Lord, we'd be faithful to Christ, our spiritual husband. We pray you'd help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen.